the foundation stone, it's important to acknowledge that this land has a much longer history. And so as we gather together in the presence of God, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and that in his wisdom and love, our Heavenly Father gave this estate to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And on this land they met for generations until the coming of British settlers. And so as we live together on these ancestral lands, we ask our Father, from whom every family on earth and in heaven takes its name, to deepen the causes of reconciliation among us. And we pray that God would unite us all in the knowledge of his Son in whom and for whom all things were created. Uh, why don't we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for the time we have together now to think about big truths, big claims, big realities about Jesus, about life, about death, about what is ultimate. We pray that you would help us to think rightly and clearly and that we would leave tonight with clarity about Jesus and a desire to build our lives upon him. We pray this for his sake. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, standing about here where I am in the dirt, wrangling a makeshift pulley and a two-ton foundation stone 150 years ago, Bishop Frederick Barker had his eye on the watch because he had to run off to jump on a boat to go back to London and so he was really itching for this service to be finished. But he didn't take off until they laid the foundation stone, they had read the scriptures, and he exhorted people from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we just had read tonight. It was the same passage they read standing here in the dirt 150 years ago with that same verse, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is saying it matters where you build your life and it matters how you build your life. There was damaging division taking place in the Corinthian church and it was for reasons that are far too common. Jealousy and infighting had taken off like wildfire flowing out of the fact that people had taken their eyes off God and instead were competing and comparing their lives with one another. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They were measuring their own human positions in the church and they were trying to assert their own value and importance. When that happens, Paul says, you're starting to build with worthless and flimsy material. When you take your eyes off God and what he is doing in building his church by his word and spirit and start focusing on one another, comparing and competing and your own importance and your own role and your own uh, value in the scheme of things, you start to build with flimsy and worthless materials. That's the wood, the hay, the straw of verse 12 that are combustible and flimsy. And those things are contrasted with materials that are worthy of a foundation, a strong foundation, the valuable and enduring materials of gold and silver and costly stones. And so as Paul kind of challenges the Corinthian church saying, be careful how you build, 
there's kind of a challenge left hanging in the air, a question, as it were, how are you going to build your life? What's the character of the life you're going to build? Is it flimsy and combustible, straw, hay, wood? Or is it valuable and solid and enduring, gold, silver and costly stones? He leaves that kind of question hanging as a challenge to them, how are you going to build? But he doesn't leave any question as to the foundation upon which they need to build their life. There's no question hanging in the air. There's no equivocation. He makes an absolute and universal statement that is consistently made throughout all of Scripture. Jesus is the one foundation you have to build your life upon. The only place that you can build a solid, enduring life that will see you through the judgment seat of God and to his perfected future. The one foundation is Jesus. It's an unequivocal, it's an absolute statement. And the reason that Paul's so clear and doesn't leave a question mark Partly is because the stakes are too high, aren't they? When you're talking about death and judgment, when you're talking about the eternal destination of men and women, when you're talking about the nature of human existence and our search for meaning and the shape of good and evil, When you're talking about those sorts of things and what will last through the fire of God's judgment on the last day, it's too important to leave the question mark hanging in the air. And so the Bible is unequivocal and the Bible is absolute and the Bible is crystal clear and it's it's presentation of Jesus as the one foundation upon which you need to build your life. And it's Jesus himself, his life, his death, his resurrection. It's Jesus who claims to have that universal authority over heaven and earth. It's Jesus who claims to be uh, the absolute and exclusive way to be right with God and to have an eternal future and to have a present and a future hope. And it's Jesus claiming that universal authority who also calls for universal allegiance as he sends his disciples to make disciples among every nation, knowing that he is gathering for himself a people from every tribe and nation and language. And from the very beginning, those huge claims of Jesus were confronting to the myriad of worldviews in the first century, just as they are shocking, those words, to our modern sensibilities. Because if Jesus is the only true foundation, the only way to be right with God, the only way to survive his judgment and to enjoy him forever, then that says something about other people who are building their lives on other foundations, who see the world through another lens. According to the Bible, these are life and death issues. 
that speak to the very nature of reality and the very nature of eternity, which makes them important, right? Rebecca McLaughlin, in the book that's shaping this series, Confronting Christianity, she says this. She writes, When questions of truth carry life and death consequences, we see persuasion as an act of love. If there's life and death consequences, persuasion is not bullying, persuasion is not strong-arming, persuasion shouldn't be manipulative. It's an act of love. But the question then is, what species of truth is religious truth? Are the various world religions making competing claims on reality or are they simply different voicings of one truth? Does it simply boil down to cultural preference? If I say Christianity is truth and Hinduism, Islam and Buddhism are not, is that like saying stop smoking, it could kill you? Or is it more like saying my grandmother's cooking is better than yours? And the implication is it's in the stop smoking, it could kill you kind of category. It's the life and death, important warning, you need to listen kind of claim to truth. Uh, Some years ago, Sarah and I found ourselves driving a a lovely Muslim lady to the train station and uh, as we got to the train station, we had somehow began talking about God and Islam and Christianity and Jesus and the nature of love and forgiveness and truth and submission and faith and eternity and all those sorts of big life and death, ultimate reality kind of issues. Uh, We sat in the car for ages and I I don't even, she must have missed her train, but um, she didn't care and, and we didn't care. And as we talked about those big realities, We did so with with care and concern, with respect and with grace. But at no point did either of us think that we were talking about the same thing. It was crystal clear that we saw the nature of reality completely differently. And it would be disrespectful to her and Islam and it would be disrespectful to us and Jesus to say, well, they're just different ways of saying the same thing. We often want to say, in attempts to be humble and inclusive, we want to make claims like, well, they're just, um, uh, they're just different voicings of the one truth. Partly because we've seen throughout history when it goes badly, when people who claim to have the truth strong arm those who they don't think have the truth where those who claim to have the truth dehumanise those who disagree with them and marginalise those who disagree with them and oppress those who disagree with them and yell in the face of those who disagree with them. But part of the response to that isn't to seek to flatten out the differences of the competing claims to truth and what is ultimate reality but instead to think about how to engage respectfully and humbly and lovingly with those who disagree, with those who are different. And so again, Rebecca McLaughlin points to 
um, a, a, an old Hindu parable that's been used so many times throughout the years about a group of blind people seeking to describe an elephant. This is one of the ways we've sought over the, the, the decades to be inclusive and humble when it comes to truth claims. And so she talks about the group of blind people trying to describe an elephant. Have you heard this before where one blind person takes hold of the trunk and says, um, oh, this is like a long snake. And one person has the ear and says, no, 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 it's wide and flat like a fan. And one person has a leg and says, what are you guys talking about? This is a tree trunk. And one person is touching the body and says, no, it's a, it's a big flat wall. And one person grabs the tail and says, guys, I'm holding a piece of rope. Uh, and one person's holding the tusk and says, no, it's a sharp, pointy-like spear. And this is one of the ways that we've sought to say everyone has a piece of the truth and together it's a picture of one whole truth. And it's an attempt to be humble and to be inclusive. And yet Leslie Newbigin, who spent many, many years as a missionary in India and heard this old Hindu parable so many times, came back to the West and saw it being trotted out in attempts to be humble and inclusive. And this is what Newbigin wrote when he returned from his uh, decades in India. He says, There's an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But if this is used to invalidate all claims to discern the truth, it is in fact an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So we have to ask, what is the absolute vantage ground from which you claim to be able to relativise all the absolute claims that different scriptures make? Because while appearing humble and inclusive, in reality, what this parable does is say, actually, I'm the only non-blind person who has a picture of the entire truth. At some point, someone's making an absolute statement because they can see the elephant. Which reminds us that all of us end up making absolute statements and claims on truth and what is ultimate reality. That's how we live. That's how we navigate the world. We have to make decisions about what's right and wrong. We have to make decisions about what's valuable and what's not. We have to make decisions about what happens when we die and what the problem with humanity is and what its solution then might be. All of us navigate the world by making judgments about ultimate things and taking absolute stands on issues of life and death. And we're far more respectful of one another if we're able to say, no, 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 it appears that we disagree. It's far more respectful of one another than saying, actually, we're all just thinking the same thing in different ways. And so the challenge then becomes, okay, when we disagree and we're making claims about what is ultimate reality and what is absolute truth, how do you weigh the different claims? How do you discern the truth? How do you think about the, the claims to uh, uh, what is ultimate meaning and what is ultimate truth? 
without resorting to the strong-arm tactics, without disregarding or dehumanising people who disagree with you or simply manipulating people to get them to comply with what you believe. Well, over the years, people have used uh, um, three categories by which we can weigh claims to ultimate reality and absolute truth. And to think about the veracity of particular worldviews through the lens of these three categories of truth, goodness, and beauty. And I just want to spend some time with us for the rest of our time tonight thinking about the truth, the goodness, and beauty of Jesus in order that we might weigh his absolute his claims to absolute truth and his claim to ultimate reality and his claim to universal allegiance. Truth, goodness and beauty. Truth, does this claim accord with history? Goodness, does this claim work and does it promote kind of peace-loving and human flourishing in relationship? And beauty, does this claim satisfy the longings of our heart for meaning and purpose? Truth, goodness and beauty. Starting with truth. And we're reminded from Luke chapter 1 of the nature of the gospel accounts of Jesus that we're talking about historical eyewitness accounts. Luke writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orally account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Uh, One of the things that that, um, uh, I think I quoted last week or the week before, Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, in her story about how she became a Christian as as a historian with kind of sandstone PhD credentials, she says when she read the gospel accounts, they just had the ring of reading history. This is what history reads like. And as lots of other people with sandstone PhDs have relentlessly scrutinised the gospel accounts, time after time after time, the evidence lines up with we're talking about historical events, just as we would any other historical event throughout time. And you have to do kind of historical gymnastics to try to disregard the gospel accounts as real history talking about real events in real places at real time with real people. And so the eyewitness accounts and the global impact of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection continually stand up to be historical documents, historical reality. And so truth, does it accord with history? Goodness, does it work? Does it promote peace, loving, gracious, humble, reconciling relationships and human flourishing? And does it have explanatory power for our human experience? That's the picture of goodness that we want the gospel um, to promote as we weigh its claims to ultimate reality and absolute truth. 
But part of the goodness lies not in the goodness of Christians, but in the goodness of Jesus, as 1 John 3 reminds us. When John writes, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Right? That's the, that's the important distinction to make when we think about the category of goodness because at the heart of the, heart of the Christian message is not a claim to our goodness but a claim to Jesus' goodness. And in his goodness, he steps in to die on the cross to take away our sin. And so where Christianity doesn't appear to be good, I was trying to think of the opposite of goodness, where it seems bad or non-goodness, is most often where Christians fail to live up to the ideal of the Jesus they claim to follow. And so all too often we can say Christianity doesn't look good, it's not good because we point to the badness of Christians which is right to do and important to acknowledge. But you have to step back and say does the, the claim to ultimate reality and absolute truth in the Christian faith, does its goodness rest on the goodness of Christians or the goodness of Jesus? And we want to say that at the heart of Christianity is not the goodness of Christians. At the heart of Christianity is the goodness of Jesus who died for the sins of the world. But the way this goodness ought to be seen then is that because Christians believe that all people are image bearers of God, that all people are made by God and so have are capable of some goodness and wisdom. The, The biblical teaching of the universal image of God in every person should lead Christians to expect to see goodness and wisdom in people who aren't Christians. And so treat them with dignity and respect and with care and with grace as fellow image bearers. But also at the heart of Christianity is the biblical doctrine of universal sinfulness, which should lead us to expect that Christians will always fall short of the goodness, the ideal of the Jesus that they follow. That Christians will always be worse than their orthodox beliefs should make them. And the fact that we see value and dignity and worth in their fellow image bearers of people who are not Christians... And the fact that Christians too are are sinners in need of grace and forgiveness, those two things should enable much respect and cooperation and gracious conversation. That's where goodness should be seen because it should lead Christians to pursuing peace-loving behaviour and the pursuit of reconciling relationships and the gracious care of all people. Uh, Miroslav Volf talks about this in his book Exclusion and Embrace as he talks about the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus that ought to reside at the very centre of the Christian gospel and therefore at the very centre of the Christian life. And he says that forgiveness flounders, right? We fail to see the goodness because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. 
But, Wolf says, no one can be in the presence of God, the God of the crucified Messiah for long, without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of monstrous inhumanity into the sphere of shared humanity and transposing herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. Do you see that? Because of the forgiveness of Jesus, you stand in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah. You see your enemy who disagrees with you and is different from you. You see them as a fellow image bearer. That they don't belong in the sphere of monstrous humanity to be dehumanised and left out there and marginalised and discarded. But rather, even your enemy ought to be brought into that sphere of shared humanity, an image bearer who has value and worth and dignity and should be cared for. And you come close to them by including yourself, not in the sphere of proud innocence that I'm morally superior. but rather I come close to them in the sphere of common sinfulness, a sinner in need of grace, someone who fails to live up to the goodness of Jesus. Just another beggar showing other beggars where to find food. And if those two things would happen with forgiveness and the crucified Messiah at the centre, then we'd see the goodness of Jesus' claim to universal allegiance and absolute truth. Truth and goodness. And finally, heart-satisfying beauty in Jesus' claims to absolute and exclusive truth. At first glance, Jesus' claim in John 14, 6 doesn't seem beautiful to our modern sensibilities. It seems arrogant and rough and exclusive because it is exclusive. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And what sounds like an absolute claim, a claim to absolute truth, which it is, and what sounds like an exclusive path to a right relationship with God, because it is, and what seemed like an arrogant and demanding statement of a malevolent dictator, a power grab by force, when we stand back and place that in the context of Jesus' words and his life and his death and resurrection, when we stand back and remember that this is Jesus on the night he is betrayed, on his way to the cross to lay down his life for the sins of the world, we see it's not the arrogant and demanding statement of a dictator but the loving call of a sacrificial servant who modelled power through weakness and love through sacrifice and humility through service. This is the same Jesus on that same night who knowing 
in chapter 13 of John's Gospel that all authority had been given to him, didn't grasp at it, but took off his robe and took up the towel of a servant to wash his disciples' feet, including those of his betrayer. This Jesus who makes absolute, who claims absolute truth and universal allegiance is the same one who, reassuring his fearful followers, says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the good shepherd who says, I will bring you through the valley of the shadow of death and I will lay down my life that you might live. It is the same Jesus who just moments later will protect his arresters from the sword of his friends. It is the same Jesus who from the cross in excruciating agony will pray for the forgiveness of his executioners. This is the Jesus who says, I will taste hell and judgment and bear your sin in my body on the cross in order that you might live and have freedom and forgiveness forever. That's why Jesus' claim to absolute truth and universal authority and universal allegiance is heart-satisfyingly beautiful because of who he is and how he goes about his mission to lay down his life for the sins of the world, to seek and to save the lost and to bring us into the joy of his eternal kingdom. That Jesus is heart-satisfyingly beautiful. And so he is worthy of building your life upon his truth, his goodness, his beauty will never disappoint and will never disappear and will never be done away with. Build your life there and graciously and humbly and gently and respectfully continue to call people to trust and follow him because he is the way, the truth and the life. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for not just who Jesus is and what he has done, but how he's done it. So we pray that you would give us humility and wisdom and grace to build our lives upon that strong and certain and enduring foundation that we might have life and hope now and forever that will never disappoint and never disappear. And we pray that we might reflect something of Jesus' truth and his goodness and his heart-satisfying beauty as we hold out the word of life and call people to embrace his universal authority and his absolute truth. We ask that you do this for us by your spirit, for Jesus' sake.
Amen.